Welcome back to the Wine and Politics Podcast, where we bring two people together across the political spectrum to talk about different issues and hopefully find common ground with a glass of wine on the side. I'm your host, Jane Marie Barnes, and I got to sit down with a very special guest for a special edition of Wine and Politics. Brandon Copeland is running as the Republican candidate for Texas State Senate District 16, so go vote for him on November 8th. (laughs) And we take a dive into politics affecting Texans specifically. Brandon is passionate about actually getting things done through policy and is dedicated to making Texas better for Texans instead of being all divisive. Brandon is a young rising star in the political scene, and it's great to see young people more engaged in politics because ultimately this is our future, right? So I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you do, please give us five stars, subscribe, and share this podcast with a friend. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Brandon Copeland. Welcome, welcome everyone to the Wine and Politics Podcast. I am your host, Jane Marie Barnes, and I have with me a very, very special guest, and his name is Brandon Copeland. Thank and you. Brandon, welcome Brandon to the podcast. How are you feeling? Good. I love your intro music. Thank you. I'm vibing <laughs> over here to that. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. I literally did that myself. Like, wow. It took me a while to figure GarageBand out, but we did it. <laughs> Maybe you should go into music. We'll see. We'll see. One day. Maybe that'll okay. be my next career path. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> um, but welcome to the Wine and Politics podcast. We are drinking Whitehaven Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand. And what are your thoughts so far on it? It's very good. Very good? I'm not much of a wine connoisseur, but uh, it's delicious. Okay, good. Uh, well, I'll put it that way. Good. I'm giving you a good first experience. Yeah. Not first experience, because you obviously have drinking wine before, but... Maybe you'll become a wine connoisseur after this podcast. Maybe. 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 I, I'm usually partial to bourbon, but I like wine. Okay, good. Yeah. See, you know, our tastes are getting mature. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if you're okay with it, I'm going to give the audience a little bit of a background on who you are, and then I want to jump into kind of what you do, what you're doing on this podcast, then jump into local politics, state politics, talk about the crisis at the border. And if we have time, I would love to jump into education. Let's do it. Cool. So Brandon is a Dallas, Texas native, and he is super passionate about politics that directly impact Texans specifically. And because of that, he's running as the Republican candidate for Texas State Senator District 16. He is a bold advocate for conservative values, and he is dedicated to defending our constitutional rights from government overreach in education, the economy, election integrity, and even border security, which we all know is very important. So welcome. Thank you for having me on. I am so excited that you're here. Okay, so I really want to jump into your background first. Sure. Why did you decide to run for senator? Kind of what's your background? What are you passionate about? Give it to us. Well, I'm very passionate about policy. Yeah. I think that uh, policy is very interesting. And creating good policy has always been an interest of mine. Although I didn't study poli-sci or anything like that in college, it's always been kind of a passion. And so I've always known that I wanted to be involved in politics. I just didn't know when I would get involved. Um, certainly 
didn't think I would be getting involved to this extent this early in my life. But yeah, I, I really decided to run back during COVID when we saw a lot of government overreach taking place. Yeah. Unconstitutional overreach. And um, I went from being very interested and passionate about politi- politics to actually asking, what can I do to help stop this uh, yeah. tyranny? I think a lot of people got more involved and engaged in politics around COVID. Certainly. Yeah. Um, people were upset with the uh, authoritarian nature of a lot of our governments, uh, whether it was at the national, state, or local level. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was it was something that woke a lot of people up and got a lot of people involved in the process. And now we're seeing a huge shift in voting patterns Mm -hmm. across many different demographics. And that's because people are starting to pay more attention and they're starting to really focus on it. And part of that is because of what happened through COVID. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was really the initial reason that I decided to run. You know, I was very fortunate to have the opportunity present itself, obviously. You know, a lot of doors shut when I was looking to get more involved and this one happened to open. Mm -hmm. And it's always something that I've thought about doing and I've been interested in doing. And so I thought, why, why not now? Why not now? It's so true, though, because to your point about people actually paying attention now, I think there are a lot of groups of people that Democrats have taken for granted, like the Hispanic community. Meyer Flores just flipped that seat in South Mm -hmm. Texas. Yeah, Texas 34. Yeah, there, Mm -hmm. there you go. And I think that's just such a great example. And she's not the only one. People are actually paying attention and politics, especially as young people, we need to be more involved, which is so cool that you are as engaged and committed to bettering Texan politics as you are, because this is, we're the future of the country, you know, like we should be the ones who care the most. And if anyone's wondering, I'm 26 years old. Right. He's a very accomplished 26 year old, (laughs) y'all. And by the way, if you're, if you're out there listening to this and you are young, you know, in your twenties, or even if you're. 18, 19, you can make an impact. You can Mm -hmm. get involved. You can make a difference. Like, don't hesitate just because someone is saying, oh, you don't have the experience. You don't have whatever it is. I think we need young people in politics. We need more young people. We need innovative ideas from young people. We need young perspectives, especially relating to technology. And so you have valuable insight. And we need more young people to get involved, especially, in my opinion, from Republicans. We have a lot of Republicans, like young Republicans, getting involved in the cultural conversation, you know, Turning Point USA. Mm-hmm. And that's all great. But you can also have an impact on policy. And yeah. I think policy is just as important. You should talk to my brother. <laughs> <laughs> I actually just had him on a podcast, the most recent one. And he's 22 and has a very interesting perspective on Gen Z. And literally, I'm just so I'm so happy that you said that because it is something we should be focusing on and emphasizing, trying to get young people engaged because we can change things. We are we have fresh ideas. Yeah. Give me his information. OK, with him. I will. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Scully, if you're listening, this is <laughs> this is a heads up. I'm reaching out to you. <laughs> OK, so, Brandon, why did you decide to get involved in Texas politics specifically? Yeah, well, I, th- I thought about it. And I think the greatest way to make an impact is at the local and state level. And obviously, I think local governance has the largest impact on people's lives. And then the state government has the second largest impact. And then the third largest is the federal government. And I thought about what my interests were and you know what made the most sense. And the state level made the most sense. I thought it was where I could make the greatest policy changes and help Texans the most. And there's lots of really important school board races and county races that are just as critical. They just serve a different function. No, that totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. And 
yeah, that's why the topics that we're even discussing today are so pertinent to Texans specifically. And we're going to get into the border later, but Mm -hmm. I'm really excited to talk about that because it is such a hot issue specifically in Texas and it's impacting people across the state now. But before we jump into Mm -hmm. the border, talking about local politics, talking about state politics, I would really love just an explanation from you on exactly what District 16 is where its boundaries are, you know, who it's currently represented by, what's important to them, and kind of tell me about District 16 and how you think you can help that district. Yeah, absolutely. So Senate District 16 spans all across Dallas County. It's bound within Dallas County, unlike many other Senate districts which span across multiple counties, and that's because of population density. But it captures Irving, Cockrell Hill, cuts through Uptown, goes up towards Richardson, and captures Lake Highlands, and then goes down to mesquite in bulk springs wow so it kind of wraps all around north and east dallas and you know a little bit of west dallas so it's Mm -hmm. um, it's pretty encompassing so how far north did you say it goes to the county line wow okay yeah the huge chunk of dallas is represented yeah i wish i could show you a map district 16 to the viewers i know (laughs) maybe one day (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, so yeah no it's a big district currently represented by senator nathan johnson he won in 2018 and it's his first term prior to him beating Don Huffines. You know, Huffines was a representative for a term. And before that, it was John Corona. And so it had been a Republican district because John Corona and Don Huffines are both Republicans. And in 2018, we lost the district. And what I think is primarily due to a couple factors, but mostly because of Beto O'Rourke. He pulled many Democrats across the finish line, even though he didn't win his own Senate race. And that was probably the biggest blue wave that we'd seen in Texas in a very long time. I remember that, actually. Mm-hmm. In 2018, everybody was talking about Beto O'Rourke. Yeah, and we had down ballot voting at that point. So, you know, people voted for Beto, and they, you know, went down ballot Democrat, and that pulled many people, you know, many of the folks running for office on the Democratic side um, across the finish line. Another thing, too, is, you know, 2018, Trump was the president, and every midterm election is a referendum on the party in power, generally. That um, makes sense. Historically, that's been true for the majority of midterm elections. You almost always have the party in power lose seats, whether it's in Congress or in Senate or at the state level. And so Trump was president, so a lot of Democrats showed up to vote against Republicans, against Trump. And so those two things combined are what, you know, shifted the district. Now, with redistricting that took place last year, based on the 2020 census, all the districts are changed. They're all new. You know, none of the districts are the same. It happens every decade. And yeah, so the the district, the demographics of it have changed. The balance between Republican and Democrat has changed. It's a totally new district. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it doesn't capture as much of the old district as you would have thought. So a lot of the old district is now part of 12, part of District 2. Yeah, it's, it's really been changed quite significantly. Interesting. So tell me more about our current representative, Nathan Johnson. I saw that you had asked him to debate and yeah. that fell through. Well, he declined. He declined? Yeah. Oh, uh uh-oh. He didn't want to debate. (laughs) I understand. I mean, he doesn't have a lot to gain. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, I think it's kind of a responsibility to provide information to the people of the district about your policies and what you're representing and to defend, you know, what your voting record is. And he kind of shied away from that. So that was a little bit disappointing. I don't think that'll happen. You know, he says that he's still willing to do it, but he's declined all of our proposals and he's, he has not submitted a counter proposal to us. From what I understand, he has not even engaged anybody, any media groups to host or moderate. He hasn't done anything. So to my mind, it seems like he doesn't want to 
talk right. about the issues. I mean, yeah, you can't really say much more than that, can you? He's a, he's a lawyer, so fair I'll enough. Let that speak for itself. Uh-huh. <laughs> we don't need lawyers. We need engineers and we need businessmen. Honestly, our government should be run like a business, in my opinion. And I think that's why I actually was a fan of Trump's because he had a different perspective on politics and how to run the country. And when you don't have as much of a political career as some people do, and you have more of an experience in actual business, you you bring something different to the table and make it a little bit more of an objective agenda policy. Yeah, I agree somewhat. I think definitely that's true in terms of problem solving mm-hmm. and efficiency. The private sector is infinitely more efficient than the public sector in almost every area and metric that you can look at. When it comes to the profit motive, I probably disagree. I don't, I don't want the uh, government raising taxes or being incentivized to maximize their tax revenue. But I think that they should be you know, maximizing economic prosperity mm-hmm. in, in whatever way they can through policy, whether that's reducing regulation or reducing taxes. It's a balancing act, though, because sure. you need some regulation. You have to protect consumers. You know, that's important. I guess you, I... you have to have some antitrust. You don't want right. big monopolies trampling everybody. We've yeah. seen how bad that is with Disney and some of these other big tech. large companies. Any big tech company. Yeah, a, bun- a bunch of big tech companies. And then what they can do is take that power, that monopolistic power, and deplatform people. They can kill businesses. Mm-hmm. We saw Amazon do that with, was it Parler? Was the social yeah, media app? Like AWS, Amazon yeah, Web the, Services. Amazon, Amazon Web Services. Um, Parler, yeah. Stopped their service and yeah, killed that company. That to me is like anti competitive behavior and that's not what you want. That's actually very interesting. So knowing that a bunch of tech businesses are flocking to Texas and even Austin specifically, have you thought about what kind of policies you would put in place to guard against, you know, any kind of antitrust behavior that you're talking about within Texas specifically? Because if they're operating in Texas, they have to operate under Texas state law, right? Yeah, true. And federal law. But we have anti-discrimination in our laws. They're not supposed to be able to do that. I think the one area that's lacking is maybe protection for political speech specifically. We don't have like a clear protection for political viewpoints. That's not like a protected, you know. And you're saying we should add that. I think it needs to be looked at. You know, obviously what we've seen is a lot of these companies taking people off of their platforms and deplatforming them because of their political viewpoints. Mm -hmm. Even a lot of times when it's grounded in data and science. You saw that with COVID, especially. That is very dangerous. Oh, yeah. Um, Now, I think that uh, as a private company, they have the ability to operate as they see fit. And if, you know, part of it is them saying, hey, we're going to act as a publisher and we're going to be treated as a publisher, then okay. Yeah, you can moderate content like that. They need some content moderation. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to political speech, it's different. You know, Twitter took Trump off of their platform. Right. While he was the sitting president. I mean, that's insane. And their justification was very poor. I mean, they tried to say he was inciting, inciting the riots, uh, you know, January 6th, whatever. An insurrection. Uh, Yeah, insurrection. But what evidence did they have of that? You know, everything he said was about peacefully protesting. Never did he call for violence or for the Capitol to be stormed or anything like that. And they still use that as a justification to deplatform the sitting president. Even when legally they could find no grounds. I mean, they're trying. Right, but to no avail yet. Right, yeah. yeah. That's crazy. It It is so completely opinionated. And people operate based on a very biased point of view. And I know that we're getting a little bit off topic. But yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It is something worth speaking to, though, because as conservatives, like, it's just a fact. Big tech companies censor conservatives more than they censor people on the left. So it's just worth stating. 
No, absolutely. Kind of to circle back, you were talking a little about local politics and the upcoming election. Yeah. A couple of things that I think are important. I have some dates that okay. I'm going to tell you guys that I think are important. October 11th. That's October the last 11th. day to register to vote. Okay. So, Everybody, if you're not registered to vote in Dallas County, register to vote by October 11th. Or wherever you are. That's, that's an important date. Early voting in Texas starts October 24th. October 24th. And goes through November 4th. And then election day is November 8th. November 8th is so election day. Put all those on your calendar if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Do it right now. Pause this episode and put it on your calendar right now so you remember. <laughs> yeah. And, and no, we got a great slate of candidates in Dallas. We got um, Faith Johnson who's running for district attorney. That's very important. Crime has gone crazy in Dallas. We'll talk yeah. about that a little bit more later. But we need a good district attorney. We got Lauren Davis who's running for county judge. Obviously Clay Jenkins who's our current county judge has been very authoritarian and very far to the left and he's been horrible there's there's not many things that he's done that I've liked <laughs> just a quick aside I got more involved in politics and even local politics because of the first press conference I watched of Clay Jenkins yeah. I just felt he liked the the power a little bit too much yeah that tends to be the case mm-hmm. for a lot of folks on the left <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah and we got tons of other candidates I won't go into all of them because there's a lot yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, it's a very good, strong slate, and I'm excited that we're getting to do this together and, and run together. It's been a lot of fun. That's so cool. Yeah. And for those of you who are curious about other candidates that Brandon is referring to, if you want to go to DallasGOP.org, that will be the place to go research. Yeah. So DallasGOP.org. But zooming out for a second, you're running for Texas state senator. Mm -hmm. How do you feel like state government differs from national government? How do the politics differ? What's the party line breakout like? Does the government work in the same way? I think a lot of people are, myself included, not as informed on state government specifically as much as national government. Right. And it's different for every state. So depending on where you live, this could not be accurate. But in Texas, it's very similar to what we have at the federal level. We have a state constitution. We have a bicameral legislature. You know, that means we have a Senate and a House of Representatives. And we have a Supreme Court. We have a whole court system. So it's it's organized very, very similarly to the U.S. federal government. Gotcha. And within that, we have 31 senators and we have 150 representatives. And the breakdown is we have 18 Republican senators and we have 13 Democratic senators. We have 85 Republican representatives and there's 65 democrat representatives so republicans do have a majority in the texas state legislature yeah okay and obviously the governor's greg abbott so he's a republican right (laughs) (laughs) that's helpful but i think there's a lot of democrats who are on they like head up committees and stuff education is one of them maybe yeah so we have a lot of obviously we have a lot of democrats that are elected it's very close to being uh, almost 50 50 and in the House, we have many Democrats that have been appointed to chair committees. Okay, and that's yeah. caused Republicans a lot of headache, especially when they're trying to get their priorities passed because they'll get killed in committee. Education is a great example, like you brought up. It's hard to get anything done in education while a Democrat sits in that committee position, mm-hmm. in that chair. Yeah, and, and that's something we want to do in the next legislative session is we want to come in and implement school choice and really start solving the issues that we're seeing with education. Because, as you know, educational standards have been declining for the past three decades, and it's not getting better. we got indoctrination in our schools. People are upset. Parents are upset. And uh, it needs to change. We need to have educational freedom. We need parents to be able to choose where to send their kids to school without having to totally uproot 
their lives, sell their house, move to a new school district, whatever it is. That's really hard to do, especially in this economy. We're in a recession. It's imagine having to sell a house and then buy a house. You know, it'd just be a nightmare. So we need to give parents options. Do you want to just go into education right now? Yeah, sure. Since we're already talking about it. So you say school choice. Mm -hmm. You talk about, you know, setting policy for school choice. And on your website, you even mention changing public school funding. You say we need resources to follow the students, not school districts. Can you expand on that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we need to have money follow the students wherever they end up going, whether they're going to public school, private school, or they're homeschooled. And those are tax dollars that we've all paid for. It only makes sense that every student has a certain amount allocated to them. And with the way the system is now, it is very inefficient. A lot of these school administrations have wasted a lot of their money, and we've poured hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, additionally into these schools because they say, oh, we need more funds, we need more funds. Okay, why isn't the school system improving? We just gave you tons of money. And it takes time for anything to have an impact in education to see the results of it because education is slow. So you have to measure it over many, many years. But we've True. been increasing funding over many years and we still see a decline. And so the school administrations have been very inefficient mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And I think that that bureaucracy that's basically been created needs to be, it needs to be shocked a little bit yeah, to, that's be, a good way to, to become it. back and become efficient again. Because right now, the way that it is, you have all this money that's getting spent on tons of programs that don't have an impact on education. Our schools should be focused on education, not on counseling, not on mental health. That's important. Kids should be getting the help they need if they're struggling. But our funds, our tax dollars, need to be spent when they're going for education on education. Okay. For so th- textbooks, paying teacher salaries, having good facilities, and spent on student resources. So on your website, you talk about kids are getting indoctrinated with critical race theory as well as uh, social emotional conditioning. Would you describe what you mean by that? Well, social and emotional learning, which is what they call it, that is just critical race theory rebranded by Democrats. That's all it is. And they've added a couple things to it. But at its core, it's critical race theory. They're trying to push all kinds of very radical left-wing ideology, whether it's transgender, LGBTQ+, ideology, or whatever it is. They're using that as a mechanism to allocate resources to those areas and then push those onto our kids. In my opinion, is that we shouldn't have any sort of political indoctrination in our schools, whether it's from the left or the right. Our elementary school kids should not be politically indoctrinated by these radical theories, and they shouldn't be putting up gay pride flags in our elementary schools. Guess what? They also shouldn't be putting up Trump flags. Yeah. I would say that's true or should be true for all of our elementary and middle schools and arguably high schools. Oh, I completely agree. I think even on a previous podcast, I talked about the Parental Rights and Educations Act in Florida. Mm -hmm. And I think it goes to your point both ways. You know, you shouldn't be trying to add some kind of social element of, you know, what your personal preferences and beliefs and values are to the classroom. Yeah, they should be focused on math, science, history, social studies. There's a handful of the core subjects. You know, we need to get back to to teaching people those. Something interesting when I was doing research about the pros and the reasons that people are advocates for social emotional conditioning or learning. And in my opinion, this conversation will be increasingly interesting because mental health and mental health awareness has become increasingly popular. Everyone's looking to destigmatize it, which in my opinion is actually a good thing. But at the same time, that sort of feeds into this idea of social emotional conditioning because you're teaching people to be self-aware, handling their emotions and handling stress better because people who support 
this way of learning, they say that it's a way to help students communicate how they're feeling because it's harder to learn in an environment where you're feeling overwhelmed. So what are your thoughts? Well, I think a lot of those things can be good, but the question becomes who is teaching it and what is their motive? And for most of these person who should be teaching it is the parents, not the school administrators, not some school counselor. It's the parent that should be teaching these to their kids. And I understand there's some parents that don't, and that's probably causing problems. But what is their motive, right? Are they truly trying to help or are they trying to help and push an agenda, which is what they're doing? Is they're pushing an agenda. And if your kid needs help and needs counseling, there's tons of great therapists and tons of great counselors that you can go to that are not going to be pushing the kids one way or the other in terms of politics. There's great resources out there, and you can find a pretty... Uh, we're living in the 21st century. You can find all this with a simple Google search. Right. You know, it's not like people are struggling to find where these resources are. Like, they're there, and it's just a matter of the parents taking the initiative. And like you said, and like you questioned, is what about the parents that are irresponsible, mm-hmm. that don't take care of their kids? Because I think that's a question everybody would have. What about those situations where it's worse for the child that when their parent is responsible for that. Right. And there's we have systems that help with that, right? If a parent is being abusive, then you have child protective services. You know, there's tons of other ways and the school administrators, if they're identifying some sort of abuse, you know, should absolutely be reporting that to CPS or whoever and trying to help those kids get the help they need. But I don't think that it should all be done and housed within the education system. I don't think it should all be housed under a school board because Every time you have politics enter into something like this, you always end up with a system that is not really having the kid's interest at heart. It's having the political interests at heart, and the kid is just a means to an end. They might be acting like they're trying to help, but they're not always. There are some good schools out there, and there's, some, there's many good administrators and good counselors, and I don't think it's always bad. But if you're looking at it broadly across the system, there's a lot more harm than good that's coming out of it. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of that example of that. It was a a Pacific Northwest teacher in either Seattle or Portland where he went on TikTok or Instagram or some social media site and was bragging about indoctrinating his students into Antifa through extra credit. Oh, yeah. Go watch. Go on TikTok. People post it. Oh, my gosh. They're like openly (laughs) saying it. The greatest account that's ever been created on social media, in my opinion, is Libs of TikTok. Oh, yeah. Libs of TikTok has exposed a lot of these radical people. And they're not like trying to hide the ball on these things. No. They're going out and saying openly, oh, yeah, we're indoctrinating your kid with this or that or got all of the kids to identify as trans or identify as LGBT or, you know, non-binary or something. The whole thing on transgenderism blows my mind because I think, so the argument against it is, well, it's only just a small portion of the population. It's just about being inclusive and making that small portion of the population feel like they're not an outsider. But if you look at the numbers, Gen Z is the most LGBT of every generation that has come before it. Yeah, significantly. It's it, what is it? It's like a crazy statistic. I can't think of it off the top of my head. I don't know the exact number, but it yeah, it's it's significantly more than any of the other past generations. It's gone up. And why do you think that? It's because it's a social contagion now. Well, it's societal pressures. That's a good if point. If you have people telling you, "Oh, it's cool to do this or that," which you have many people in our culture saying that, especially in Hollywood, and they're saying, "Oh, well, there's tons of advantages to it. It's cool." Of course, you're gonna have more people move towards that direction. So that's just the result of many, many things, a lot of cultural influence, a lot of pressure from 
like we said, schools and administrators. And it's all done under the guise of, you know, inclusivity and acceptance. And we want all kids to feel accepted. You know, we want right. all kids to feel like that they're okay. But, but just because a kid feels one way doesn't mean that that's their reality, right? Like if I could feel like a billionaire, doesn't mean that I can go spend a million dollars and my bank account doesn't have that much money in it. You know, I'm not even close to oh that. If you feel that way, it doesn't mean that you should be irresponsible. And how, how bad would it be if you had a bunch of people telling you, oh yeah, yeah, you should do that. That's good. That's, that's morally good for you to get into massive debt because you feel like you're a billionaire right. you know, or something like that. It's crazy. It wouldn't make any sense. That'd be abusive is what that would be. Yes. Yes. You're totally right. Validating somebody's warped sense of reality isn't compassionate. And this whole conversation about thinking you're a billionaire, but really not in reality, you're not, reminds me of this other thing on TikTok that I've started to see. Have you seen this furries thing? Oh my gosh. It is happening in high schools. People are identifying as cats and that's like a way for them to either skip class or they actually believe that they're cats and then they dress up in creepy costumes and meow and hiss at people. <laughs> that is they're a thing. They're just sitting in the corner meowing. <laughs> yes. It's nuts. It's nuts. This is like a, the slippery slope, in my opinion, of transgenderism. You can't just say that something is true if it's fundamentally not. Well, yeah, I, I think that as soon as you get away from reality, then you start entering into very dangerous territory, especially when it comes to psychology. There is some science, if you look at any mammalian population, you know, there's a percentage of it that will exhibit homosexual behavior. What animal is this? I, any mammalian species. Oh, and, okay. Yeah, across the board, right? But if you compare that percentage to what we have people identifying as human beings, it's very, very weighted towards human beings because of societal pressures, Mm -hmm. right? There's always some inherent baseline, which you could call, and this is the argument the left uses, is that they were born like that, right? I think there's maybe an argument there. Again, if you look at any species, you do see that. Transgender is a little bit different. And obviously, the further away you go from that, like furries, the more ridiculous it becomes and the less scientific it becomes. But some of the core arguments that are made on the left can be true. But the problem is they then go use those very small statistical anomalies, you could say, and then paint a broad picture and try to make that an argument broadly across many different areas. No, that makes sense. Like, it's a small number of people who really do identify that way or feel that way and have actually felt that way since they were born. And when you focus on it, you blow it up and make it seem like it's a bigger thing than it really is. And if it becomes the center of cultural conversation, then it feels more normal or cool or there's more pressure to be like that. Yeah, well, here would be like an example. Okay. Right. If you look at like some of the studies they've done for transgender folks, they do brain scans on these people. And you're looking at their brain and you're comparing it to other people's brain scans. You know, you can see how someone who's saying they're transgender how their brain structure is more aligned with, say, they're biologically a man and they identify as, as a transgender woman. You can go and in some cases you can see that the brain structure does align more with the female brain. But that doesn't change the underlying fact that the person's DNA has an XY chromosome, that the person has male reproductive organs and all these things. So they pick and choose and then make broader arguments based off those base cases. And even so, that's not always true. And then the question becomes, well, was the brain always like that? Or did it become like that over time through their interactions with people or their decisions or societal pressures, right? It's impossible to know, you know, because you can't scan the brain of a baby and, mm-hmm. and figure that out because baby is 
can't identify as, right. you know. It's kind of like that uh, nature versus nurture psychology argument that yeah. you're alluding to. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> yeah. No, I, this is very fascinating to me because I haven't heard that study about brain structure yet. So I'm really happy that you shared that. So yeah, thank there's, you. Yeah, there's a lot of studies that have been done in that space. So mm-hmm. I, I'd have to go back and look and do a little bit more research on it. You're fine. Yeah. No, that's try, not what I, you're here to talk but about But I try either. to be balanced. <laughs> I, I want to be scientific with how I approach issues. And we also want to be moral. And I think that being grounded in data is good. But you also have to be consistent. You know, if you're looking at something, an issue... You have to look at it from all sides and you have to consider the data as it comes. And by the way, we, we do not know very much about the brain. The right. brain is still very much an unknown. But I think to your point, having data to back up your opinion and looking at it from all sides actually allows you to become an, a more informed individual. Yeah. And especially in the realm of politics kind of circling back, understanding different points of view and the facts from both sides that support one frame of mind or the other is a really great way to just understand how other people think and, you know, to decide your own opinions. Yeah, totally. But at the end of the day, I mean, from a policy side, we want everyone to be treated equally under the law. Right. So we don't want anyone to be treated, you know, in a special way or, you know, to be harmed. We want everyone to be treated equally, regardless of what it is race, sex, anything. We have to have a really good education system. Education is an important issue. We need to be educating our kids effectively and teaching them our history and teaching them math, science, all of it. And we can't have a really good education system if we don't have safe communities. Without safe communities, it's really hard to have really any policies be effective, especially if it's something like education. And so with that, crime has been going crazy. Brandon, that's a beautiful transition. Yeah, (laughs) I I probably could have done it better. No, that was fantastic. Our education system has a lot of problems and they're exasperated a lot by the increase in crime that we've seen recently. And the root cause is the border. I think you're very correct about that. I didn't think that even in Dallas we would be feeling it, but even Dallas right now does not feel nearly as safe as it did a couple years ago. No, it's not. Dallas has seen a huge increase in crime. I mean, year to date, 2022, we've seen, I think, one of the largest homicide rate increases in the country compared to any any of the other cities. Part of that is because of what's happening at the border. And we're on track right now to hit a two-decade high in homicides. Um, Whoa. It's, yeah, it's scary. I mean, it's definitely not safe. No. Like, I don't feel safe walking home at night. I don't feel safe leaving to go to my workout class at 6 a.m. Yeah. I, even in my neighborhood, I, I see that there's an increase in homeless people walking around. There are a few people that have come and knocked on our door that have been not friendly. Yeah. That's a very real issue that people, if they haven't started feeling it already, they're going to. Yeah, certainly. I think we've all felt it. It's not just homicide. It's every crime statistic, you know, home invasion, sexual assault, all of it. It's going up very fast. And it's scary. It's scary for a lot of people. Yeah. And our police, our wonderful police have been given a very hard job. Yeah. You know, especially when we have one side in this campaign wanting to defund the police. And they've kind of backed off that, but that's still what they want. Right. Or just any kind of criminal reform. I don't know, just as a quick aside, if you've been keeping up with the legislation in Chicago, that'll go into effect in January. Mm -hmm. They're nicknaming it the purge bill, the people who are in opposition to this bill. Because starting January 1st, for certain violent crimes, like kidnapping, if you're charged with kidnapping, assault, second degree murder, the police are not allowed to jail you until your court date. You just get a ticket and you get your court date filed and then you're on your merry way. Yeah, that's reform that the left has been pushing for a long time. 
it is very, what I would say is very pro-criminal. Right. Right? It's basically going against the bail system that we have set up. The term equity is what they use. Right. Equity um, versus equality. Right. And basically they are looking at the statistics and they're saying, oh, well, it's more harmful for our black communities because they have a larger incarceration rate based on population. And if you look at a lot of the communities that are committing crimes, not necessarily the black community, any of them, really what the metric is, is wealth. If you look at what what is the wealth of a community that correlates closely to the crime rates, but they point towards wealth statistics between ethnic groups, and they kind of use that as a way to push this radical system that allows criminals to basically walk free until their court date. Now, they could always post bail, but why do we have that system in place in the first place? Because you want to make sure that criminals show up to court and, you know, that justice is served. And if you don't have that system, then people won't show up. No. And they'll continue to be out there in the community and continue to commit crimes. And yeah, there'll be a warrant out for their arrest, but our police are undercapacitized. Yeah. And then when you're having 2 million people every year crossing the southern border into communities like Dallas or even San Antonio, border towns are completely overcrowded with these people. Yeah. There's no question crime would be running rampant. Yeah, we have seen this past month, our U.S. Border Patrol had reached 2 million encounters this year, which is the highest in history. Wow. That's the highest in our history. And the year's not even over. And if you're looking back at 2021, there were 1.6 million encounters. And if you go back to 2020, which was when Trump was in office, there was 405,000 encounters, give or take. And if you look at the Trump administration averaged out it was probably like 170 something thousand encounters each year so i mean you're talking about magnitudes yeah greater and this is just the encounter so there's a lot more people coming across that aren't included in that so there's like millions more coming across that are not being included in that statistic wow and it's bad because a lot of the people facilitating it are the cartels they're the ones that are moving people across yep and they're not just moving people they're moving drugs they're human trafficking i mean it's really really bad So on the subject of drugs, I pulled an interesting stat. In July of 2022, and this is from the Office of Customs and Border Patrol, Mm -hmm. in July, in one month, they seized 2,072 pounds of fentanyl. It's a lot. In a month. That's a 170% increase since last year, which was 780. And I didn't pull any 2020 numbers, but just between 2022 and July alone, you're seeing an almost 200% increase in the amount of fentanyl coming through the southern border, which is now the main cause of death for Americans between 18 and 45. Yeah, it's over 100,000 a year now in deaths. That's so... It's a lot. Blows my mind. Like I'm speechless hearing that because you imagine how many people had accidental overdoses or just like got their hands in it and that was it. Then they're on the streets because they're addicted to drugs and they can't get the help that they need either. Well, like we said, I mean, I think this is a root cause of many of the problems that we're seeing in our communities, especially when it comes to crime, violent crime, particularly. I mean, we have drugs coming across our border like never before, and we can see the result of it in the crime statistics. And it's affecting the communities on the border. It's affecting our Texas cities. And you got to do something about it in the Texas legislature. It's not the state's responsibility to secure the border. That's the responsibility of the federal government. That's Border Patrol. And Border Patrol is doing all they can, but they're being held back. But it's, it's really the responsibility of the federal government. But these are our communities that are being affected. And so we have to take responsibility in Texas and solve the problem. Because the Biden administration is not going to do this. They're not going to 
solve the problem at the border. And it's a humanitarian crisis. It is. And they don't want to do anything about it. A lot of times they don't even want to acknowledge that it's happening. Kamal Harris last week was saying, oh no, the border's secure. Really? Secure? That's the terminology she's going to use? No. <laughs> it's not. It's, it's wide open. Like, choose we- a different word. <laughs> choose a different word. <laughs> well, I don't know if there is a word they could use besides wide open. Yeah. Because that's two, two words. <laughs> but open is the only word that makes sense because that's what we have is an open border. And it's been hard for a lot of our communities to be able to handle that much illegal immigration. Abbott and DeSantis have been doing this, but they've been transporting illegal immigrants up to some of these sanctuary cities, these left blue sanctuary cities like New York, Chicago, Washington, D.C., DeSantis had some flights to Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard, yeah. Recently. That's what's in the news right now. It's a beautiful city. And the people that are being sent up there, it's not very many people. I think it was like 50 migrants. Yeah. And Abbott has been sending people to these cities via bus. But he's probably sent around 10,000 migrants to some of these cities. Honestly, good. Our border towns need relief. Oh, totally. But it's so funny to see all these cities just go crazy and freak out (laughs) and complain. And it's such a small amount of people comparatively to what we're having to deal with in Texas and what a lot of the border states like Arizona are dealing with. And they just don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great for you guys to say that. But then when it comes down to it, you're really only saying it because it's not You're not affected by it. Right. So... Maybe this will wake them up. I really hope so. And I think that's the point, right? The governors of Florida, Texas, and Arizona busing these migrants up to these self-declared sanctuary cities are doing so because not only does it make a political statement, but it also relieves border towns because they are overcrowded. I think El Paso is and Eagle Pass are over three times their capacity. And it sets them on literally the front doorstep of these liberal elites who pretend like we don't have a problem so that they can't ignore it anymore. Right. And it's better for the migrants, too, because a lot of these cities have better social programs and welfare programs than they do in Texas. Mm-hmm. So they'll, get, they'll be taken care of more. I would love your opinion. A lot of the people on the left right now are up in arms about the airline tickets that DeSantis bought for the migrants to go up to Martha's Vineyard. A lot of people on the left are saying the messaging is he kidnapped them, he lied to them, it's human trafficking. The words that they are using to describe this whole thing are pretty extreme. So I'd love your opinion. Well, lied to them about what? Martha's Vineyard (laughs) is beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful cities in our country and they've said that they want to have a sanctuary city and that means that they should be a sanctuary city i think that desantis is doing the right thing and so is abbott i mean a lot of these people are going to these cities and they're going to find a much better life than what they're going to get living in a border city or something like that and democrats they just don't know what to do so whenever they don't know what to do or how to respond to something they just resort to blaming and name calling and that's what they're doing with this that's all it is Right. Because they they don't have a good argument. They've said that they are okay with open border policies. They've said they want to help migrants and that they're sanctuary cities. But then when it comes down to it, they don't really want that. Or they don't want to actually have it happen in their city. It's it's all virtue signaling. Yeah. And another big reason that, in my opinion, they advocate a lot for open borders and immigration is because a lot of these border states happen to be red. And so when you're inviting as a liberal elite as you're you know part of the biden administration or you know a mayor of new york or dc you are inviting these immigrants to come to the united states you can have a better life here and in a lot of ways they can they can have a better life but 
it also helps to almost solidify that vote for Democrat. And eventually, I think their idea is to turn Texas and Arizona and Florida fundamentally blue. I think that was their original intent. But immigration, legal immigration is good. We need legal immigration to sustain ourselves as a country. We don't have the birth rates to sustain our country without immigration. And immigration is really important. We need immigration. As a Republican, we want people to be coming here. We just want them to be coming here legally. And what's happening, ironically, is you have all these illegal immigrants coming across. And part of it, like you said, is a democratic strategy to try to turn some of these states blue. But ironically, what's happening is a lot of the people that are coming here are actually more conservative. Mm -hmm. And if they do become citizens, they're generally starting to vote more Republican. It's certainly true of the people that are coming here legally. But if you look at a lot of the immigrants from South America and Central America, they tend to have very conservative values when it comes to family and a lot of other issues. And so it's kind of backfired. Like you look at Arizona. Because Arizona has been kind of purple for a while. And the Democrats in Arizona have been really pushing to secure the border. Really? Yeah. And Biden and his administration have been trying to actually do that because what they saw is that the more that people are coming across illegally, the, the more red the state's becoming, ironically. That is very ironic. Yeah. yeah. It's funny how that works. they're not doing it in Texas. They're not doing it in Texas. But it's hard. We have over 1,200 miles of border with Mexico and Texas. 1,200? 1,253 to be exact. 1,253 miles. Yeah. It's a wow. lot. Wow. That's, that's a lot huge. of ground to cover. No, it is. It's a significant span of land area and it's really hard to secure the border when you have that much of a border right yeah it's a very big it's a very big border so what do we do about it because i was gonna ask we have to do something because what's happening right now is you have people coming from panama nicaragua venezuela cuba and a lot of other places in central and south america it's very dangerous trek for them to make we've had 750 Migrants die attempting to cross the border just this year so far that we know of. The number is probably much, much higher than that. And that's just talking about the numbers Border Patrol has, has, uh, has tabulated. Released. Yeah. Which means that many, many more have died. Wow. You know, on the trek between those countries as they travel across Central America. That's pretty scary. Yeah. Just like a month or two ago, they found in the United States, the Border Patrol found 50 dead illegal immigrants in the back of a truck. Because that was they, in San Antonio, right? Yeah. Or it was close to San Antonio. But that's what's happening. I mean, people are dying. That's scary. It's a humanitarian crisis on every it level. It is. And the reason we've seen such an increase is because of the open border policy that the Biden administration has right now. And so we need to solve that problem. And so what do we do? This is what you were asking earlier. Yes, I want to know. In Texas, well, we have to fund the creation of the border wall. So, and, I, and I'm really genuinely curious about this. I don't sure. know. When it comes to border security, mm-hmm. obviously Texas is very impacted by the border crossings than any other state probably. Isn't immigration on some level a federal issue? Like what can we do in Texas specifically that isn't necessarily federal law to protect our state? Yeah, exactly. That's true. And like I said, it's not our responsibility, but we have to take responsibility because it's our communities that are being affected. But there's some lines, right? Like we can't deport people. Texas can't deport people. That's why Abbott's been sending people up to some of these other cities. That makes so much sense. I didn't know that. Yeah, because there's not much you can do. He's done a lot of other stuff too. I mean, he's declared an emergency on the border. Pause. So you said Abbott can't deport people. That's why he's busing migrants up to sanctuary cities. But in the case of declaring an emergency at the border, I think a lot of Americans even would agree with the statement that there is an invasion at the southern border. 
Carrie Lake, who is the candidate for governor, the Republican candidate for governor in Arizona, she came out and said that busing migrants is actually not enough. She said she got a kick out of it, but she would actually deport them. So are you saying that maybe we can't legally deport illegal immigrants, whether we are or are not in a state of emergency? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, so that's literally not an option. I mean, I don't think there's any legal basis for the states to be able to do that. If it's a federal um, law everywhere. Yeah. In Texas, I mean, it's, it's probably a federal law in Arizona. The states don't have the authority to deport people. So Abbott has done a couple things. You know, he's declared a crisis at the border, which covers 48 counties, which has allowed us to deploy resources there and help with a lot of the problems that you're seeing, especially when it comes to like crime. Abbott has deployed Texas National Guard to the border to help secure it because we can we can help prevent people from coming across. But once they're here, it's hard to do something with them. Sure. The federal government has to do that. So, yeah, in the second special session that they had, they appropriated funds for Operation Lone Star, which they're calling it. And Operation Lone Star basically is helping move resources to enforce federal and state laws and prevent criminal activity along the border, um, including criminal trespassing, smuggling, and human trafficking, and a lot of other issues. So that's something that we're doing actively. But I think we have to fund the continuation of the border in Texas. We have to fund that, not everywhere, because we have an incredibly vast border. Like fund the continuation of the construction of a border wall? Yes. Or just everything? Of a border wall in key areas. Yeah. Because you can't do it across the whole border. That's unrealistic. Right. When you have 1,200 miles of border, that'd be hard to do. And very expensive. So we have to do that in key areas. And then we have to, I think, deploy advanced monitoring technology in areas where we can't build a wall because it's not physically responsible. It's not a good use of our tax dollars. But I think we can put good monitoring technology in place to allow for rapid response and rapid deployment of resources when you do find or identify someone coming across illegally or smuggling drugs across illegally. You have to be able to get the Border Patrol there quickly or law enforcement there quickly. And you can't do that unless you have a very comprehensive monitoring network. And I think you can do that with current technology pretty easily. It just comes down to funding it. So is that something that you would work through from a policy perspective once you win your candidacy? Yeah. Yeah, that would be legislation that we want to pass to get funds for that specific purpose. I think that would be very helpful. The Texas legislature has passed laws that increase penalties for people smuggling drugs. They've passed laws that increase penalties for human trafficking, making it easier to prosecute these people, these criminals. So can I ask you, so if Border Patrol catches somebody smuggling drugs or human trafficking, can they deport them then or do they just get arrested? They get arrested. They just get arrested, but they're still here. Correct. Okay. They're usually put in prison here, but a lot of times they end up getting sent back. Yeah. To Mexico or okay. wherever. Yeah. Because they, they violated federal law. Yeah. Right. It's hard to prosecute some of these people because, I mean, you look at it, they're not U.S. citizens. And it's also a very heavy burden on our system to, you know, keep them in prison. But I think we do send a lot of them back and deport a lot of them. I have to go back and look at that. I, I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. I'm just curious. Yeah, that's a great question. To kind of round out the discussion mm-hmm. on the border, what are the three things that we should be doing from a policy perspective to protect our border and our communities? Yeah, it's a great question. From a policy perspective, I think we have to be supporting law enforcement across the board, and we have to be getting them the resources they need and making sure that we can stop these criminals from trafficking drugs and human trafficking and whatever it may be. That's probably the most important thing we can do is Mm -hmm. try to make our community safe again. The second thing is 
help secure the border with policy. As I mentioned a little bit ago, I think we can fund the continuation of the wall and help Border Patrol and, you know, enforcing our laws and preventing illegal immigration by getting advanced technology to the border to help help stop people from coming across. And I think we should continue what Abbott has been doing, is sending illegal immigrants up to many of these sanctuary cities and making it their problem, too, because that's what's going to get people on the issue at the federal level. That's what's going to change people's opinions. That's what's going to ultimately change policy. Because if you can make it their problem, too, then they'll want to solve that problem. I'm sure a lot of them want to solve that problem by just granting amnesty, but they know it's not sustainable. Because even if these people were coming across illegally and going to their communities in the numbers that we've been seeing on the border, they wouldn't be able to sustain themselves, at least not with all the socialistic programs they have. And so if if that's the case, then I think that what Abbott's doing is good because it gets more people involved in the conversation. And it also makes the conversation, it puts it to the forefront of the political scene. Because this is a very, very important issue. Right. Yeah. Especially right now, I think it might be one of the most important issues currently in the political conversation, both from a state level and a national level. Absolutely. As well as education, too. So to kind of round out that conversation, what are the three things from a policy standpoint you want to make sure happens within education in Texas? That's a great question. In Texas, well, there's a couple things we want to do with policy. In Texas, we want to have funds follow the students and we want to create school choice. Those are probably the two most important things we can do. And within those two major changes, I think you can solve a lot of the other problems that we're seeing. And by the way, do a lot of things that I think are good, like getting teachers paid more, as opposed to having a bunch of random administrators that no one knows what they do right. and <laughs> wasting money on things like that. Like, let's let's get good educators. Let's uh, attract teachers yeah. into the public school system. Yeah, let's or get private. good educators into our school system. And then also, let's change the way we fund our education system so that we can get the students the resources that they need and not waste resources on stuff that doesn't matter or isn't as important. And yeah, give parents the freedom to be able to choose where to send their kids. I think that's very important. Whether it's at a public school or private school or through some sort of voucher system, because what we've had is wealthy families have had school choice because they can afford to send their kids to private schools. They can afford to homeschool their kids or hire tutors. Most people can't afford that. So most people haven't had school choice, but the wealthy people have. We have to allow for everybody to have school choice. And the best way we can do that is by having our students get the funds they need wherever they go to school. They should be getting the tax dollars that we've all paid to go towards their education. And I think if we did that, our private schools and our public schools would all become better because it would become more competitive. Totally. Money talks, right? Yeah. We're finishing up our conversation about school choice. How about you just give us any lasting thoughts? Well, I think we touched on many of the important issues that we're facing in Texas. Because education, the border, we didn't really talk about the economy, but that's also very important. But all those things, they have to be solved at the state level. Just like you were saying earlier, people are most impacted on a day-to-day basis by local politics and then state politics and then national politics. Yeah. Whether it's the border or education or the economy, the federal government's not going to solve these problems. We're going to have to solve these problems at the state level and the state legislatures. And that's really where things are going to get done. Because the federal government has been very inefficient and they can't really get much accomplished besides just budgets. And so when it comes to actually solving problems, you know, we really have to be doing it in Texas and in the Texas legislature. And so that's what we want to do is we want to go to the Texas legislature and help create good policy to address these issues. And that's, that's what's important. At the end of the day, we have to be solving these problems. Because if we don't, then our state and our country 
are going to dissolve. It might not happen tomorrow, but it'll happen eventually. You know, if you have economic degradation, if you have... Population collapse, have, cultural yeah, degradation. It, yeah, cultural degradation, population degradation, or... Education degradation. Yeah. I mean, everything. All, all of it. So it's very important for the states to be stepping up and solving these problems, which they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at Florida, and you look at Texas, and you look at Arizona, they're all moving in the right direction. So that's where the real change is going to happen. And as a country, it would be very good for us to focus more on state politics as opposed to federal politics, because I think it is more policy-focused and less divisive. At the end of the day, that's what's going to make the biggest difference in our country. That's going to be what's good for our country if we can get more people to be less divisive and more focused on policy. Well said. Thank you. I think that's great. Brandon, thank you so much for coming on. Everybody go vote on November 8th for Brandon Copeland for State Senate District 16. Yeah, that's right. Anne-Marie, <laughs> thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed the conversation and I look forward to seeing your podcast. Oh, thank go, you. Go viral. Please not, come. Not just this episode, but all the episodes. All the episodes, <laughs> but, but especially this episode. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> no, seriously, Brandon, come back any any time sure and before we wrap up for the day you need to rate the wine you said you liked it at the beginning but if you were gonna scale it from one to ten okay one to ten yeah this is not gonna be very accurate because i don't have a great palate for wine but i enjoyed it i would give it a nine whoa yeah i thought it was really good okay that's like the highest rating we've gotten so far well i I love it. it was delicious it's very good i didn't have very much of it but That's okay. You were busy telling us all about policy, <laughs> so don't even worry. From what I did have, it was very good. <laughs> That's the White Haven Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand. That one's a good one, but like yeah. chilling it, refrigerating it, best thing. They're I have a not friend- sponsoring it. You are. No, I'm yeah. hope hopefully you're one just day because you're a fan. <laughs> yeah, I have a friend. She freezes her white wine. Oh wow! So that it's like ice cold and sometimes a little slushy. Interesting. I am not that. saying she's wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> it could be worth a try. I'm just saying, maybe you'll become more of a wine connoisseur after this conversation. You'll go freeze some Whitehaven Sauvignon Blanc and see how it is and report well, back. I don't know how many of the connoisseurs would say that that is something you should do, but... Fair enough. I, <laughs> it does sound interesting, <laughs> but I'll trust you. You I'll should. Do it. I'll try it out. Okay. Try it out and report back. All right. Thanks, everybody. This has been Wine and Politics, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs>